Hi, and welcome to episode 180 of the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. I am Laurent Bannock, the host. Uh, so earlier today, my discussion was with Professor Abby Smith-Ryan. Abby has been on the podcast a number of times to talk about a number of different topics. And if you're familiar with Abby's work, you'll know that She's a real tour de force in the sort of applied physiology area, particularly as it relates to female strength, conditioning, performance, particularly nutrition. It's been a fascinating conversation that we had today where we sort of dig in a bit organically, but the conversation revolved around this topic of, of female athletes what does that mean? But particularly when it comes to things like performance, body composition, there are a number of considerations that one needs to factor in. And I think that you'll get a lot out of this conversation as I did. When you think about females, age, of course, is relevant when you start to think about menstruation, perimenopause, menopause, the differences that exist as a result of not just that, but just general female physiological differences between men and women in the context of strength, performance, power, and endurance, and of course, body composition. So anyway, that's just a little teaser. I think you'll get a lot out of it. But before you get into today's discussion with Professor Abby Smith-Ryan, just quickly check out our website at www.theiopn.com, where you can learn about our new Level 7 Diploma in sports nutrition, level seven being master's level program. Very excited. It's uh, the latest version of our program, the Diploma of the Institute of Performance Nutrition. Practice focus, all about applying science into practice. So you can learn about that at our website. You can catch up with our past episodes of the We Do Science podcast and this episode today, where I'll have links to the various papers that we've referred to. Whilst you're there, check out also our SEMPRO software platform, which is all about supporting practitioners working with individual clients, team settings, online coaching, you name it. If you're a performance nutritionist or a nutrition coach working with active people, then SEMPRO will provide you with a range of tools and resources that will enable you to get the most out of your coaching process with your clients. So anyway, that is all I wanted to say. So hopefully you'll enjoy this conversation with Professor Abby Smith-Ryan as much as I did. Enjoy. Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. Today, I am really excited to be talking to someone I've known you a little while, and by a little while, We've met at a number of conferences. You actually came as a speaker to a conference I organized. And I got feeling so old when I say this, but that was like nearly 10 years ago in itself. I mean, eight to 10 years ago, I can't quite remember quite how long ago. It might only be seven years ago, but it doesn't matter. It's been a long time. And there's been a number of changes in the world, of course. But I think one of the most exciting ones is the one I've just learned. And that is that you are now Professor Abby Smith-Ryan. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. And yes, it's been too many years. So I'm really happy to be able to sit here and chat with you today. I'm so grateful. I've heard you speak many times over the years and I've, I've followed your work ever since I first met you at an ISSN conference 
long time ago. And, you know, you've been involved in areas related to sport and exercise, nutrition, health, fitness, performance, body composition, and so on. And I know, you know, you're a really dedicated researcher. You know, you just have to look up your publication history and you can see just how much work that you've put out there in great journals and and so on. But as with most researchers, there will be variations in your in your interests over the years, but you seem fairly firmly focused on a number of areas. I'll let you uh, discuss with us in a minute, but I'm really excited to talk to you today, Abby. So bring us up to date then. So, you know, what have you been up to over the years and uh, where are you now with your work? It's funny. I was thinking the last time I chatted with you on this podcast was with Dr. Craig Sale about beta alanine, which is where my kind of career started. Um, And I still do some dietary supplement work, but really focus a lot on the metabolism, body composition, and with a focus in female health. And I I think back actually, when I came to Middlesex to speak, it was on nutrition for women. And that was, you know, seven, eight years ago. And so it's still within that theme. And I'm still very passionate about that. But you know, the most exciting part and why I like to specifically come talk to you is no one reads the papers we write. It's about the translation. And so I'm excited to just talk about like, what does this mean? How do you apply it? How does all the science, uh, most of my science is rooted in the translation? What does it mean? And how do we change and in, in inform practice? And that's perfect, Abby, because that is what this podcast is is all about. And there's, there's a lot in what you've just said that will uh, ring true for a lot of the people that are listening, particularly those that have listened over the years. I've got a number of things I get really obsessed with, things like the context or relevance of these things that we talk about, but also, you know, how we need to be mindful that a lot of the research is is either maybe not not so great in terms of quality. You know, there's a lot of quantity as it relates, and there's lots of reasons for that. And there's a million and one different journals, and there are all sorts of, you know, pressures on people to publish and so on and so forth. But actually the greatest problem is not so much the abundance of those publications. I think it's, as you have just said, it's it's the issues that relates to their translation. And that's what we're interested in on this podcast, is to discuss these things, but make sure that we unpack the evidence into the appropriate context so that everyone concerned, you know, guess what they need from this. And yeah, it's true, you know, not everyone read these papers, although I'm going to link to the ones that will talk to about today so maybe we can change that metric slightly abby but just give us an idea about you know over the past few years you've been publishing a certain amount of research on certain topics that sort of thing just give us a little bit of background as to why you got into this area in the first place in your early career and i realize that's pushing it to scratch your head there abby and have a think but you know why did you even get into this whole field you could have done something else you could have been an athlete perhaps yeah i mean that's a good question i mean i think my reason is the same now that it was a you know i don't know 15 so years ago and my goal is really to improve health and quality of life of the individuals around us and do that with a feasible and effective exercise and nutrition approaches And so most of my work involves, you know, I wouldn't want to say the shortest amount of time and the the most supplements, but how do we really take approaches to exercise and nutrition that people can actually do in their real life? And that is not, you know, normal everyday people, clinical populations, as well as athletes and looking at how can we make things small tweaks to maximize what we're doing 
with our workouts and, and nutrition. And so I do a lot of intervention based work with exercise and nutrition and dietary supplements, but then a whole other arm that I think is very valuable that I've spent a lot of my career on is body composition measurement. And so, you know, what is the most valid method? What's going to be the most sensitive? How about limb asymmetries and how is that impacted by food and, you know, sex and uh, male, female, like those types of things. So that when we, and a lot of that I do with elite athletes because their bodies are so different and, you know, what's the impact of race and age so that we understand how actually things are changing when we're creating interventions. You know, I really want people to enjoy exercise and to feel the benefits and not have to, you know, exercise all day, every day and eat only the foods that, you know, whatever the, the healthy foods, it's really, how do we maximize our life and feel better? If we just go back to something you mentioned, which was the very topic of that presentation you did for us seven-ish years ago about nutrition for female athletes or active females. Now, if we just bear in mind that even right now, although this is suddenly, I use the word carefully, suddenly, because it's obviously not a sudden process. However, it's still a minority of researchers you know, research generally is focused on female. And there's some reasons for that. And we've discussed that in some previous podcasts. But I mean, we go back seven years. I mean, you were <laughs> you were literally in the Wild West at this point when it came to that particular topic. I mean, yeah. I'm just interested to know that, you know, not necessarily why take the path of least resistance and just do what everyone else is doing, but why did you feel that that was an area you wanted to specialize in? I think for so many reasons. And it wasn't because I was a woman. I think it was... I had spent enough time in the field to have a good understanding of how the human body was responding, you know, when you layer on a stimulus like exercise, spent enough time looking at specific dietary supplements to really start asking, like, they don't line up the physiology, the physiological response and what we're studying, they could be different in women. And then I think this is maybe where some of my personal bias comes in, but the transition of a woman over a lifespan is incredible. Even when you take from you know, uh, when they hit puberty and then you add in, you know, physical activity or elite athletes, and then you add in pregnancy and perimenopause, that transition to age, there's just so many things there where a lot of women are struggling or there's just not a lot of conversation about what's happening. And then when we look at life, things like caring for a family, a full-time job, trying to reach, you know, specific exercise goals, there's a lot of things that can help make it easier when you know you layer that in. And I have had some really fortunate interactions with different companies and you know product development and that kind of translation. And nobody was having that conversation. And I think it's not acceptable. And so if I can contribute to that, that's one of the benefits. I, you know, I laugh when you say I'm a professor. Well, the only thing it really allows me to do is to do what I want to do and worry less about, you know, like I still have to you know, check the boxes, but I can push through some of that resistance. And the goal right now with some of the female stuff is to make it easier, not only to study, but also to interpret and to understand. And we're doing a lot of that now so that it is easier to study women and to, you know, integrate some of that into more of our, our research and research other labs as well. That's awesome. And I'm really grateful that you're doing this, but I'm going to ask you a question, which I mean, especially seven years ago, would not have been obvious at all. And some people might think this is an obvious question, but why is it important to differentiate males and females if we potentially have more in common than we don't, depending on how you look at that 
statement. But, you know, is it not, it obviously requires attention, but why, Abby, why do you feel it's needing so much more attention than it currently has for you to focus so much of your time on this? Well, yeah, I mean, I think we actually have some really great data to suggest that there aren't a lot of differences when you compare males and females for certain exercise outcomes. But what we're missing is how the woman responds. Like even throughout, you know, a monthly cycle, a woman is going to differ in how she responds compared to a male. And then you throw in contraception and then just this so many changes over a lifespan. And I chuckled last time I was with you, I had had like a six month old, I was postpartum and just the lack of data and the changes in physiology that can really be targeted with certain exercise and nutrition approaches. And it's just, you know, the majority of the world is female. And when the majority of the data is based on male. So I think one big stride is that I don't think we need to necessarily make sex-based comparisons. How are males and females responding differently? But let's ask a different question. How are women responding when we, you know, are, are prescribing the same exercise or these, you know, basic nutrition or key supplements that have been studied? Maybe the dose and things do not need to be different, but we don't know that right now. We do, we're getting more data, but I I think we have to recognize that the longevity of women and the majority is there and those things need to be met, especially as we transition through life and we see some changes in health discrepancies and some of those things. Yeah, no, it, well, I mean, the evidence seems to be very much going in this way. And I think for me, you know, there's one extra thing you could add into this that really, well, skews it towards females in terms of us needing to understand much more about this is when you start to look at the age of a female mm-hmm. relative to you know men to a certain extent there are during the lifespan of, of a male the differences from sort of adult young adulthood to you know a guy in his 50s or 60s may be not such a big difference unless mm-hmm. we're talking about certain elite areas but for females it's massive isn't it so let's just get into that in terms of defining uh, and again, this is sort of an obvious question, but it isn't, is, you know, from your perspective, how do you define a female or a female athlete, of course? And, you know, what are the sort of things that you have to do in your research to be able to make those, you know, differentiate those different metrics, if you like? Oh, yeah. I mean, you've had some great speakers and Kirstie Elliott Sales doing a lot of this work. What we're trying to do is make that clarify that a little bit more. And how do you study these women? So understanding, you know, do they have a normal menstrual cycle? What type of contraception, if any, are they using? And then a lot of my work is looking at women once they've started perimenopause. So intermittent menstrual cycles prior to hitting postmenopause, which is a single point in time. And the reason I'm partly why I'm so passionate about that is a lot of women don't know that they're in perimenopause. And that's when a lot of physiological changes happen, both mentally and physically. The other kind of interesting thing is in the US, the, you know, the Title IX law is like when women in sport were, it just kind of propelled them. And so now we have all these women from Title IX that participated in sport and are either, you know, perimenopause or going into postmenopause, kind of going from this very highly active life. And, and what's the impact? Like, we don't know, you know, when we tie it into metabolism, there's a lot of things that change with the mitochondria that impact metabolic rate and metabolism that can, you know, result in weight gain and fat utilization differences. And so it's really 
there's a lot that can happen that we just don't understand, especially if you layer in the people that were active. And I'm thinking, you know, the World Cup and women's soccer, football, as you all call it, like there's so many women now that have had children and then return to sport. And that's just not been studied. Like, how do we maximize that and maximize their bodies so that they can, you know, perform whatever you want to define performance as? No doubt this is a treasure trove of <laughs> of areas to go into. I come at this from the perspective of being a practitioner and I'm sitting there. I work with many more males than I have females. I'm absolutely no expert when it comes to helping and supporting females. But it strikes me that there's so much you need to do to understand the needs and preferences of your athletes. You know, a lot of things as a nutritionist you're confronted with is just basic things like, you know, just basic needs and preferences. What do you like? What don't you like? What's actually practical? And yes, of course, we get very much into things like energy balance, energy availability, big area that I find, <laughs> uh, particularly with the elite athletes, particularly endurance athletes or team sport, female athletes can be relative energy deficiency and all the hidden problems that occur. We've definitely done podcasts on that with numerous researchers, but doubling back on myself as a practitioner who, for the sake of this conversation, is not a researcher in that context, doesn't have access to, you know, all the, the kit and the equipment that you have. And, and indeed, the cohorts of women that are volunteering for your studies, you know, you're sitting there trying to understand what's going on. From your perspective as a researcher, trying to help support the practice, the application of this? What, what are the areas that you feel have been missing in the data so far that you uh, are or want to be focusing on that you feel will help us move forward in that sort of area? Oh, gosh, that's a, a loaded question. <laughs> I mean, I think I think right now there's a lot of conversation of how negative is the menstrual cycle on things like performance and sleep and nutrition, and even how does oral contraception impact, uh, you know, chronic adaptations to exercise. And, and I think we don't know, you know, every person is different. And so I think as a researcher, that's a little bit challenging, but what we're trying to do is study different types of oral contraception and, you know, normal humanary equipment of how is physiology changing across a menstrual cycle or throughout a pack of birth control pills so that we can understand then how we might not treat it, but overcome some of those barriers if they are being had. And, and so I think I would take a step back. And, you know, when we think about the practitioner, one thing that we haven't done a good job, I was a former collegiate athlete and we never talked about menstrual cycle or periods or, and even when I talk to, and we interact with our collegiate female athletes here at a very D1, you know, institution, or as women, you know, as they are in perimenopause, kind of that 42 to 52, many of them have never even considered when their period happens and what happens around it. And so a lot of times to me, it's, it's asking, are you having a period? You know, how long do they last? And really having the conversation of the individual um, to recognize what are changes that are happening. Do you see changes in your sleep and your mood and your nutrition and your fatigue? Because those are the things that matter more than whatever we're collecting in the lab. But the hope is that we can take research to inform some of those questions because, you know, it will be dependent upon the um, individual. Or, for example, there's a, thousands of types of different birth controls that you can take. 
So we can't study all of them, but if you can have an individual recognize, oh yeah, I do feel that, you know, when I take my placebo pill, I do feel a certain way. Okay, well, maybe another type of birth control you could try based on those side effects. And so I think it's really giving ownership back to the women for them to to realize these are the things that you could feel. You don't, doesn't mean you are going to feel these things, but let's recognize that if you do, there's things that can overcome. So I mean, quite vague, but for example, you know, we know that through some phases of the menstrual cycle, you might have greater soreness. And so if you're more sore, well, there's easy nutrient timing ways to reduce soreness or think about maximizing sleep or modifying training load if someone is feeling those things. And so, you know, I think it's taking the individual approach based on high level data that can inform that practice. That's great. That's what I was expecting to hear and what I was hoping to hear, I guess. If we can accept that there still isn't that much research out there, there's not a whole lot of evidence. You've mentioned that in some of your papers over the years. And of course, you're working hard to help fill some of those gaps are some of your colleagues around the world in this topic. If we try and understand on the body of knowledge that does exist as it relates to to females, I made a comment about in some ways we have more in common as in we as in men have more in common with females than that you may apply to general concepts like energy balance, for example, and particularly in non-elite athletes. And then obviously there are elite athletes in different types of sports and we can all get crazy with these conversations. But perhaps you could narrow this down a little bit to some of the areas that do appear to be more relevant in terms of female-centric strategies that perhaps are different than you know, than we might consider for men. What what are the sort of areas that the evidence seems to be pointing at? And you yourself have found in your own work. Yeah. So I think a couple of things. This is not the paper I sent you, but one thing that comes to mind is we recently finished a couple of studies looking at creatine supplementation across the menstrual cycle. And so one thing, you know, that we see without any sort of supplement intervention is that across a normal menstrual cycle, there is changes in fluid distribution. So a lot of times women gain weight, water weight, and um, hold it extracellularly. So they feel a little puffy, feel a little bit like, you know, a little soft, I would describe it. And so two things, we've picked up on that with body composition measurements. And we know if you're using any sort of water measure, so we will use like a multi-compartment model, or if you're using some sort of bioelectrical impedance, that will be sensitive to those fluid changes, meaning you'd want to account for the time of the month that you're measuring body composition, because that will alter your results. If you're using something like a DEXA, it's less sensitive. And so that's a good thing to know the stability. But then when we add in something like creatine, creatine is obviously very widely studied in men. The work is growing in women, but when we look at the differences in brain creatine stores and some of the impact on recovery and phosphocreatine, just differences in fiber type, across a menstrual cycle, we're seeing that creatine can actually help with some of that fluid distribution in the high hormone phase and bring some of that fluid into the cell. And so I think we see two things that could help with preventing some dehydration and it could help also with some of the feeling of kind of edema, kind of bloating because we're actually able to retain some of it. And so I think now the question is, how does it impact performance? That would be the next step over more of a long term. So that kind of an application would be, it may be helpful to do a creatine loading phase right before the luteal phase. 
to help with some of that fluid distribution, which would also help with recovery and performance. And for men, obviously, we wouldn't see those implications. That's really interesting. I've read about this. I'm not sure specifically which paper you're referring to, but it's quite possibly a paper I've read. But this concept does get interesting, again, from the practitioner's perspective, Mm -hmm. because you're talking to somebody who's, they're not just an athlete, they're not just female or male, but they're not just female. They're a human being and they suffer sometimes from, you know, the impact that information can have, such as gaining weight, losing weight, and the, you know, the the induction of feelings and emotional responses to that sort of thing, which of course can then have an impact on psychological state. Definitely from a nutritionist perspective is uh, eating behaviors and choices can certainly be impacted. And I guess from the sports psychologist perspective, there could be a whole mindset issue that, you know, particularly if this happened proximal to an event, they weigh themselves and they appear to be gaining weight and they Mm -hmm. need to be losing weight if they're a weight category athlete and so on. It's not a new area, but it is a really interesting one, how we measure these things. And you've already mentioned the difference between different compartment models, of course, and how we measure those from DEXA to skin folds and so on. But of course, we also get massive variations in the accuracy of that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not yet Starship Enterprise type, you know, Star trek type phases of technology, but we do have some reasonably decent bits of kit out there. Between the lab and the field, what are your thoughts about those testing methodologies as it relates to providing that feedback to the athlete like whether we should do it or not or yeah well or maybe we're doing it because we need to understand where they're at but we don't necessarily need to feed that information back to them as rawly as we might yeah Yeah, you know where i'm going yeah yeah yeah. okay so yeah we do a lot of body composition measurement in our elite athletes and there is always this fear and especially in the u.s of how that messaging is delivered to the athlete And, you know, obviously, like you don't want to, you know, weight conscious sports, there's reasons not to display that. But a lot of the conversation and the view should be on muscle mass and lean body mass. And I know we have some papers and so do a few other labs, but looking at what we call fat free mass index, which is the amount of muscle a skeleton can withhold. And we've created some sports specific, uh, we were the first lab to look at female specific, and then there's some male specific, but it really allows us to also understand injury prevention. So for example, if someone is carrying lower skeletal mass or muscle mass, like you would anticipate, for example, an endurance athlete to have lower muscle compared to, let's say a weightlifter, but there are still normative data. If you want that, if they're too low, then that gives you some insight that they may, you know, be at risk of injury. So some of those index, another one is body composition index, kind of looking at some changes, kind of a loss of fat and gain of muscle. And that um, kind of equivalent over time can give you an idea of how the body is changing, particularly with the program. One thing that we've started to do too, is look at custom regions of interest, particularly for muscle to go in and look at the glute, the quad and the calf with something like a DEXA, or if you take something a little bit less sophisticated, like a segmental bioelectrical impedance analysis, a lot of those are are more widespread now, but looking at right side and left side for muscle mass, it really helps you identify and can predict 
uh, low energy availability. Like, like if you put them through a pretty progressive resistance training program and they're not gaining muscle, well, that shows us that they're they're probably not eating adequately. And then you you know those values are also really important to calculate energy availability. And so using those things, I would say, are very helpful for injury prevention, injury tracking, as well as understanding program design. There's so much to this. I'm thinking very much of another issue, which is the concern, well, maybe in the more recreational sort of gym goer level, there is a concern about, oh, if I'm going to lift weights or consume protein, am I going to get bulky? You know, am I going to get too many muscles? And obviously, I remember talking to Stu Phillips about this, and you know, he started going off on a tangent about, you know, testosterone and various other things, and almost certainly not really an issue with females. However, it is very interesting in the context of an athlete, though, because they do want to benefit from training adaptations. They do want to get faster or potentially stronger or or whatever. If we view it through the lens of the needs of an athlete, and of course, there are strength, speed, power athletes, there are endurance athletes. I'm guessing your answer might vary slightly depending on what type of athlete we're talking about. But we know a lot about how men respond to training and how nutrition, for example, can influence those adaptations. But as it relates to women, you know, do we just do the same thing as we do with males? Or, you know, what are your thoughts on that, particularly with athletes? Yeah, I like your leading question. There is a paper that just came out that says, you know, if you train in certain phases of the menstrual cycle, it'll impact hypertrophy. But like who trains in only one phase of their menstrual cycle, right? I don't think that's very practical. So we've looked at, yeah, how does nutrient timing? So the field of nutrient timing has been around for decades. And until recently, all of the data was done in men. And when you look at one of the key differences between males and females relates to metabolism, like what fuel we are using, particularly at rest and during exercise. And so that's one thing that we looked at in my lab is, okay, you know, there's a lot of good data on what to eat after exercise and sometimes before, but what we're seeing based on some of those metabolic differences is that eating prior to exercise, which is often a window that women avoid because we have higher gastrointestinal issues and a lot of women are exercising to burn calories. And then when you do reach for something that's often very much a carbohydrate based, which impacts then our ability to utilize fat, which is what we are more designed to do. And so we've looked at some pre-nutrient timing versus post-nutrient timing in women specifically. And obviously more data is always needed, but I think one takeaway I have is as a female, regardless if your, you know, your goal is endurance performance or strength performance or hypertrophy, having nutrients prior to exercise is probably more advantageous for you than it is for a male. And having some amino acids prior to exercise can be helpful in both of those scenarios. And so that also goes against of what most of the information that we're hearing, you know, intermittent fasting or like, of course, eat after when I really focus and tell women to eat prior to, obviously, if you had a meal a couple hours prior to, you don't need to have another thing right before, but oftentimes women have those long periods of time in between meals and then go to their exercise fasted with this goal of burning fat. When we see the exact opposite is that having some protein prior to exercise actually enhances fat oxidation, obviously, depending on the type of exercise, you know, if it's high intensity, that's still carbohydrate use, but after, 
and it can impact strength and lean body mass gains by having enough fuel available. So it, it impacts resistance training outcomes as well. I love the topic of nutrient timing because if you hang around the sort of the recreational, you know, gym type environment, you know, there's a lot of arguments about whether or not nutrient timing is even relevant. There's the whole barn door conversation. Strategies for sports nutrition really aren't that relevant to recreational gym users. And what you've just talked about, the eating before or after. And of course, you know, when you actually look at how long it takes to digest, absorb, and, you know, the availability of a lot of those nutrients is around for some time. And actually, I can see the very logical argument for consuming before and not necessarily after. But it is the sort of acute and sort of medium term response to substrate utilization that I think gets rather interesting, doesn't it? Particularly in the context of a female, and then you start introducing issues like the impact of hormones on this Mm -hmm. sort of thing. We also need to combine that with the type of exercise, of course. Mm -hmm. This starts getting really complicated, Abby. I know you've done research in this, particularly with things like high-intensity interval training and (laughs) high-intensity resistance training and so on. And even if these strategies are not necessarily something an athlete is going to be focusing on as it relates to the specific adaptations for their particular sport, you know, for body composition, particularly off season or at different stages of, of their season or their year, these things absolutely could be and should be factored in. What are the sort of things that we should be thinking about when we're looking at advising females, particularly on the body composition front? What are the different things there that are the considerations given all the different types of exercise and all the complications we've discussed, which I know is a five-hour podcast in itself. but One takeaway I would have is, so women, we are designed to utilize more fat for fuel. And that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to burn fat, and that's not always the goal of exercise. But I think if we, we flip that and we look at what most elite athletes or non-athletes are eating around exercise. They're either not eating or they're eating carbohydrate because our gut uh, as a female tends to be more sensitive to some of those things and causes more GI distress. So carbohydrates are more easily utilized. But what we see is in that blunts our ability to utilize fat for fuel. And so it makes us what I call us more metabolically inflexible. And then secondarily increases risk of glycogen depletion uh, if, you know, you're doing endurance exercise. And so to me, that's where supplements come in. And a lot of what we've looked at are, well, what happens if we do something like a whey protein or more recently looking at essential amino acids around exercise and the impact on our performance outcomes or exercise outcomes, but then also body composition. And what we're seeing is that an essential amino acid, particularly before exercise, can have a big impact on exercise performance, but also these adaptations. So greater lean body mass, greater strength, greater energy expenditure. And so, but then I, you know, when we practically look at that, you look at nutrition products on the market, particularly related to active people there's no protein in pre-workouts, like, you know, like your gels, they're all carbohydrate. We see the post-workout protein, which is a message that is good. But I think for our women, we need to be looking and developing things that help them, you know, get over the GI piece, but also providing those amino acids beforehand has some clinical implications too. But when we look at kind of the, the everyday female, you know, athlete or active woman, that's an easy change that can have a big impact, which goes against everything that I was ever told. Like, of course you wouldn't eat before you exercise and have a banana, but like, 
yeah, the protein actually helps facilitate a number of things. It's a really interesting area because if we take a very, well, not just a reductionist view, but a very narrow focus in the time course of a day and say, you know, you do this at the beginning of a workout, you know, you must be bonkers because that's just more calories. Why bother? You know, however, the implications on metabolism after that, but also on eating, you know, feeding behavior can change as well. And of course, the whole metabolic response, the metabolic adaptations, which was another podcast we did a number of years ago with Lane Norton, very interesting topic that was, is interesting. And in some of the podcasts I've done, and I'm thinking people like Dylan Thompson and James Betts, Javier Gonzalez from the University of Bath, where they've done a lot of these metabolic studies they've looked at the compensation effect that occurs really starts to get interesting and of course i i wonder if you add in the female physiology to that situation whether or not we would see differences and i'm guessing we would right i mean i don't know if we know but i do think and you've brought this up a number of times which is good i don't think you can ignore the psychological impact and differences between males and females on eating behaviors and just some of the impact of nutrient timing. And so I think, and then when you throw in, you know, exercise blunts appetite. So the pre-feeding has a number of implications for not only, you know, body composition, but also recovery and hunger and kind of the metabolic impact afterwards. And so I think often we're looking just at the exercise bout, but when you take a higher level look, you know, impacting energy expenditure and fuel type, but then also um, exercise volume, how much are we doing? What's the cumulative effects of those things? I think those are are often overlooked or not thought about, you know, if we're looking at just the acute feedings. I like to humanize these things only because I've worked with lots of people and I've tried to get my head around some of the science over the years. And I hear different opinions from different people. And of course, some of those people are people who actually do research. And of course, there's lots of people who don't. And they've all got different, you know, levels of understanding about this stuff, as I have over the years. You know, I'm a lot more switched on to this stuff nowadays. But, you know, the reason why I keep coming back to the human being, of course, is because a lot of this stuff that we're learning in in labs, this information is acquired under a very specific set of conditions. But if we if we bring it into the real world where, for example, the stress, you know, the anxiety of an impending event, let's throw that into, you know, a certain phase of a menstrual cycle. A person is feeling particularly sensitive to their body or body composition. And it may not even be, I'm thinking dancers now who may be getting a lot of external negative feedback from their dance teacher or from let's put this outside of traditional athlete context and into, you know, musicians and dancers who might be responding to social media. I have seen this with football players, soccer players, by the way, who have responded to public opinion about whether or not they've got a six pack or not. And that has influenced their eating behavior. So of course, there's a lot in that, isn't there, that influences sort of the impact and effect and the responses, you know, physiologically, because of course the brain plays a role in all of this. How do you, from a translational perspective, how do you try and control for that, you know, in the lab setting and then still try and well, tease out what you need to learn from that process? That's a, a good question. I think it depends on the study. And so, you know, some studies were looking at individuals that have taken no medication for anxiety or depression or anything, 
And then other times we'll maybe do like a run-in phase or some familiarization so that, you know, the stress of the scenario or whatever we're doing becomes more normal, kind of that run-in piece. And then, you know, depending if we're trying to mimic some sort of competitive nature, then we put similar, you know, time components or that within it. So I really think it depends on the population. But then I think first and foremost, I think our field in general is learning you don't always have to control for these things, particularly like there's a lot of pushback now with how we study women. It has to meet a certain criteria. I would argue as a researcher that limits the generalizability instead of controlling all the things, just report them. So let's do a better job of describing, okay, what were those environments? What medications were taking? What, you know, what phase of the menstrual cycle were they in? What could you control for? Because you know, especially if we're trying to translate, we don't want to have all those controls because then you're translating to a very small group of individuals. Instead, it's just greater transparency. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I appreciate just how difficult that is. You know, there's a reason why a lot of males, mainly males, have been studied because it's just easier. <laughs> it, it is easier. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I mean, if we're being honest, our field of exercise physiology is mostly males. And there's, you know, I actually got to do a podcast on that uh, inside exercise. They're doing some cool with Greg McConnell. But anyways, there's a lot of things that play into where we are in science. Some of that is, I think there's some practical components, but a lot of it is embarrassing really for the field that it's taken us this long potentially to get to this point. But it is what it is. But I'm just so interested in, you know, the needs and requirements of female athletes, particularly you know, the nutritional strategies that we, you know, that we have available. And I guess an area that is really popular just generally in sports nutrition generally, of course, well, there's two areas, of course, one of which is proteins always. I always joke about this. If I have protein in the subject, the title of my podcast, they get vastly more downloads. It's just a bizarre thing. And of course, the other one is that very polarized debate of carbohydrates, you know, but for the athlete who needs to be functional, and needs to be somebody who's going to achieve an outcome, which is basically to win the event, you know, do the best they possibly can. Some of that stuff is less about what they look like. And it's far more about, you know, their ability to perform. If we look at it from that perspective, topics like protein needs for females, do you feel that there are any particular differences there? I know we talk about with males, you know, age starts to become rather interesting as it relates to protein needs. What about females though, specifically? I think carbohydrates and protein become really important for the female in a slightly different view than males. When we look at protein, we have some data in review of particularly more of like the perimenopause. So kind of our, I wouldn't call them older women, but we may see some of the anabolic resistance earlier in women than we do in men. Um, we have some early pilot data there, but trying to undercover more because, again, that is the not only the protein amount, but the feeding of protein and the timing may be more valuable for a female. And then I think another kind of question that we're looking at right now, as well as how that changes over a menstrual cycle. There's some early data that you know suggests that protein turnover and utilization is greater in the high hormone or luteal phase. But we really haven't looked at that. It, you know, the, uh, people say it's due to endometrial lining and some of those things. Um, we're looking at that right now of how that changes in eumenorrheic and with an OC use to see does that differ. And when we look at across a menstrual cycle, our carbohydrate needs change as well. And I think that's where it 
is not to say that men and women necessarily need different amounts of these things. I think there are some differences generally, but when we see some of the discrepancies of women, particularly across a menstrual cycle, they can be met if we increase and change our calories from protein and carb. It's really more of that. Do we change the amount based on our goal and our training and and some of that? And so some of those differences that we need to look at or, or how would we maybe change our kind of components there? I guess an area that keeps flagging up in my head, though, which I I certainly don't want to not talk about, and is this issue of the whole relative energy deficiency area. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it would be unfair to say that this is females only because it isn't, you know, this is an area that most definitely can be a problem for males, particularly weight category athletes, thinking, you know, jockeys, as in horse riding jockeys, combat sports, particularly the lower, you know, weights that compete in that area definitely endurance athletes and so on but there's no question that with females this is a particularly big area and i'm sort of thinking you know particularly with at a relatively young age for females you can go past the point of no return in terms of damage that can be caused let's just quickly get into that because i think that with men to a certain extent and i could be completely wrong and i'm totally open for criticism but I think with men, there's a margin of error issue there, which you can get away with, you know, but for females, definitely not. You know, obviously there's the bone health issue, reproductive health issue. What are the areas we should be considering in this regard, Abby, and what can we do about it? Yeah, so I'm not an expert in this area, but my colleague, Tony Hackney, does a lot of work and we had collaborated on a study looking at some low energy availability in men. And you're right, they are more resilient, meaning that they can get away for longer on a lower calorie intake, you know, compared to women before seeing some of those hormonal changes. I think with women, I mean, when I was younger and an endurance athlete, it was a badge of honor to lose your menstrual cycle, you know, like that was a good thing. And now we're having this conversation of like, no, that's not a good thing. How do we address it? And I don't think we know the long-term impacts. I think I would like to like kind of leave on a positive side is that we know that by increasing caloric intake or and or reducing some of our caloric expenditure, that those things, those impacts actually can return to normal. And there doesn't have to be like, I don't know if we, you know, bone obviously is harder to recover from, but some of the other fertility and menstrual, you know, pieces or ovaries and Right now, I don't know if we have data to say that it's, you know, long-term detrimental. And so I think it just bodes more for let's have the conversation. Let's understand our energy availability so that you can overcome those. Because I know many active women, it's not something that they're intentionally doing. But when you avoid, okay, understanding how many calories someone needs, when you avoid some of that, then we, we don't know if they're meeting those needs. And so it's getting a measure of body composition and lean body mass and bone and understanding how many calories they're expending so that you can actually see their energy availability. And then, yeah, often eating more. And that's also where the nutrient timing comes into play, because if you can, you know, prepare the body and the muscle to have nutrients before and after, then that has more of an effect and it can be more protective against some of the, you know, the endocrine changes that we see with low energy availability. We've talked about all sorts of things here. And one topic that comes up a lot because it's of great interest generally is, you know, the whole area of body composition, the measurement of body composition also comes up quite a bit. And I've had various chats with different people about this, even about DEXA and the big issues that there are with DEXA as well. And I'm thinking things like even 
just it might be the same brand, but it's not necessarily the same software model or you know, the firmware could be different or something. I mean, there are amazing things that can influence the secret recipe that these people use. For you as a researcher, this is something that's going to come up quite a bit for you, I imagine. What are your thoughts and concerns about this? And what should we be aware of as it relates to measurements? Yeah, this is probably an unpopular opinion, but I think it's ludicrous that we don't measure body composition and that we're not sharing it with our athletes and our, our people. Because education is power. Knowledge is power, right? And so, you know, I think a lot of times we worry that if we're giving composition numbers that it's going to, you know, support it or, you know, foster an eating disorder. But I would say not if we're educating them on what it means and focusing on things like muscle mass and limb asymmetries. And so one thing we always do and highly encourage is we want an accurate result. That's more important if you just have a single time with an athlete. And the most variable component is fluid, is water. So, you know, we've developed several methods of using a DEXA with a water measure to get more of a multi-compartment model to make it more accurate. And then even in that case, there are discrepancies with DEXA. However, the muscle mass and the limb asymmetries could be much more of a focus. And even the bone, that total body, than uh, percent fat value that is often, you know, focused on. And so absolutely those muscle mass values and the bone values can be really important. And then when we look at, I think the tracking changes is even more valuable and really focusing. It's not about losses of fat and percent fat. It is in knowing that we, we know those are related to injury. So every athlete has a different set point for at which, you know, percent fat can be related to injury. But then it's really looking at muscle mass changes and limb asymmetries and how the body is adapting. Like if you are going through a, a high volume season or you have multiple seasons comparing from one year to the next and looking at things like performance and recovery and perceived exertion. And so it's a tool that should be implemented, you know, amongst sports science. And I think it's often something that people worry about. And, you know, and then we take it outside of the athlete. Like I measure my body composition every nine months or so. And I have, you know, pre post kids and my students always laugh because they say like, it's not fair. You have science on your side. I was like, absolutely. I do. Like, I don't have to train like I used to because we can use science. And so I also like to say like, I haven't lost muscle mass with age and I'm lean, you know, maybe then I was in grad school because I know how to do it better. But I think it's knowing what that looks like and using it to your advantage opposed to it being a taboo topic, particularly for our active individuals, because it tells us like, is it working? Are you doing what you should be doing to meet the goals? And it's hard to do that if, if you don't have those numbers. I completely agree. And I think the the obvious red flag for me is is the heavy use of percentages. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of problems with that. And we've gotten into that in many podcasts. In fact, I have a very memorable podcast with Professor Sean Arendt when we talk about test don't guess. In fact, I need to get Sean back on to get back into these sorts of things. But where I'm going with this, because we're talking about females, and you've mentioned about fluid and so on, is an obvious problem area where and I guess in the sort of the more field-based environments and particularly in the more gym-based environments, which athletes, pretty, you know, high-level athletes still train in gyms and still have access to these things, is the whole bioimpedance thing. Yeah. You know, biological impedance, you can maybe just give us a quick overview about what that is, particularly as it relates to females and why that may, you know, you, you should be slightly concerned with what that 
is telling us when there are so many implications of being a female in fluid balance and so on. Yeah, and I can share one of our papers on that specifically across the menstrual cycle. But bioelectrical impedance is just looking at our kind of resistance and reactance of fluid within the muscle. So if you are changes in hydration or fluid retention, it will impact the accuracy of that device. I wouldn't say don't use it. I would just say be more cognizant about testing time points. And one easy way to measure women is to measure them when they're menstruating because it's low hormone, fluid's pretty even despite fluid leaving the body, like the fluid distribution is pretty even. And if you're not, then, you know, understanding, like comparing someone during their menstrual cycle versus someone right before. So a luteal phase, a lot of those differences are going to be based on fluid. And so I think just good common practice is when measuring a woman to ask, where are they in their cycle? And if they're like, I have no idea, then that's another step back is that all of our athletes and all of our women should understand what point in their menstrual cycle they are at. That doesn't mean you change everything, but it's really recognizing, okay, where are you? And start recognizing are there differences that you feel? And then knowing that there are key physiological changes that would occur, fluid being one of them that you can account for. Now that you've mentioned that, it made me think about, you know, these fluctuations in fluid, fluid balance, of course, the impact that that has on weight generally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But also if we throw in carbohydrate ingestion Mm -hmm. and maybe a little dose of creatine as well, (laughs) we start to really change you know, fluid storage, if we want to be very basic about it, but also glycogen storage and Mm -hmm. various other things. And then you, I guess you, you put that against the potential changes in substrate utilization. What are we left with in terms of understanding where we're at with all this? Gosh, I mean, I think we have a really good understanding of carbohydrate utilization in women across the menstrual cycle. I think of anything that we know a lot about that because it changes. But I think what we don't do as, you know, and I work some like indirectly with practitioners, but is asking those questions, you know, like, okay, should we change your carbohydrate intake based on being in the luteal phase? And so we know that we should. So it's connecting what we do know and how that impacts or at least addressing, okay, yeah, your body composition is different. Last time we measured you here, what are some real changes? Is it because of some of the fluid and the carbohydrate intake? It's just realizing you are working with real people and they're not just numbers and understanding like, you know, there's physiological changes occur more for our women than our men in some of these kind of minutia with fluid and carbohydrate and body composition. That's great, Abby. I mean, you know, the point of my asking these questions is just to help illustrate where we're at with this, because clearly there's things we know, there's things we don't know, and there's a massive amount of gray areas of all this, isn't it? And from a translational perspective, you know, like you just said, I think we just, I think we still do it. We just need to be, as you said, cognizant of Mm -hmm. the strengths and limitations of the research in this area. And uh, we just need to bear that in mind. So, in a real world situation, we have, an athlete or a subject, and we talked about testing, you know, how often should we therefore be testing? And let's talk about body composition. That's probably the main area. You mentioned nine months for yourself, but you know, how often should we be testing? And when is too soon also? Because sometimes there are situations where you want to be testing, you know, very quickly or very soon after a, another event because you're trying to achieve a result rapidly and or bring about, you know, some buy-in, some, you know, behavioral aspects to this. What are your thoughts on the actual testing side of this? Yeah. So it's so dependent. So I would say high level, 
pre-postseason is a really good kind of baseline to start. And then, you know, if you are trying to detect some of those quicker changes. So for example, here, if we're doing a kind of a summer strength and conditioning program, and we want to see how that changes, that's more of like six weeks. But recognizing then if I'm doing something like six weeks, the program better be intensive because most of our methods can't detect much more than like a, you know, by himself plus or minus 3% change or, you know, same percentage of muscle mass changes. And then, you know, if we're thinking about injury, that's another time point of someone you want a baseline, if someone gets injured, you may want to measure them, you know, kind of pre-surgery, post kind of surgery before they start rehab or some of those things. But generally, I would never do more than every four weeks. We've done here with some of our elite basketball players where season, I mean, they're playing like every other game traveling. So trying to hone in on how much muscle mass is lost or how do we help them with longevity of the season, you might measure them a little bit more quickly, but not as a measure of, oh, you know, what percent fat are they? It's really like, how are they changing from the previous time? So are they in a positive or negative direction so that we can help facilitate kind of, you know, injury prevention? So if you have a very sophisticated device, four weeks, maybe, and then I would say most often we, we wouldn't need to do it that frequently, six weeks, and then really pre-postseason. Yeah, great, great. And then just to sort of segue slightly into a slightly different area, you know, we talk a lot about protein and carbohydrates and calories, and now we're talking about males and females and so on. But some of these people do still want to follow very specific dietary preferences like vegan or plant-based or you know or, or the other side of it of course is the rather extreme stuff because they believe you know avoiding carbs altogether for example will benefit their body composition but particularly for females is there any i mean this is a very generalized sort of area not specifically aimed at any particular type of sport or whatever but just generally for body composition what are the key areas that you feel are relevant, you know, for those that are maybe going maybe more down sort of plant-based or vegan or vegetarian type paths? Is there anything there that's relevant for females that we know of? I mean, I think just protein timing throughout the day is going to be really important. And there's some good data on carb to protein ratio that, you know, sustaining something slightly lower for a woman is more optimal for body composition. So, you know, obviously if you're a vegetarian or vegan, that's a little bit harder to do. And then, you know, like the last point, we, we don't have a lot of time left, but the last point I would say is there's some really fascinating data that longer windows in between meals actually exacerbates the effects of energy availability and, and red S. And so oftentimes it's just making sure like meal frequency is happening, then kind of intermittent fast would not be something that I would recommend, particularly for a woman. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, look, I throw that in just because it's such a popular, you know, area. It still comes down very much to individual situations, doesn't it? But look, there's so much stuff that we've talked about. It's just been fascinating to delve into this topic with you, Abby. I know we're out of time here, but is there anything you wanted to end this conversation with? Just generally speaking, maybe some just sort of sum up points about your thoughts, particularly for you know, body composition and female and then being athletes, for example, is there any particular points you want to leave us with? Recognizing at what point in the cycle, not to be afraid of the numbers, really educating women on what those numbers are and what they mean would be really valuable. And then on the nutrition side, there's lots of more resources coming out on just recognizing that there may be differences. And so um, kind of continue those conversations. 
Yeah, excellent. Well, uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Abby. We've bounced around on all sorts of topics there, but that's the way these conversations go on this podcast. And it's been really interesting. I've There's all sorts of papers that we've discussed and then papers that you've also referred to. So I'll be sure to add those into the notes here so people can read up on everything. But I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time. I know you're super busy, but it's been great to have you you back for a chat and there was lots to to get out of that conversation. So thank you so much, Abby. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to see you virtually. Hopefully we'll run into each other again. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Now that, well, we'll see what the world's going to do, but uh, conferences will be necessary. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Abby. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.